Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this new episode of Research for What, I am very privileged to discuss with Dick Howitt, CEO and President of Cochlear Limited, one of Australia's most celebrated advanced manufacturing success stories. Cochlear Limited was established in 1983 as a subsidiary of Nucleus to commercialize a cochlear implant, also known as a bionic ear, an innovative technology developed by Professor Graham Clark at the University of Melbourne. After 40 years of commercialization, cochlear implants are now recognized around the world as a standard of care for people suffering from severe to profound hearing loss. To date, Cochlear Limited has provided more than 720,000 people with cochlear implants and has a global market share of more than 60%. Research and development are key elements of cochlear's innovation and success. In this episode, I ask Dig Howitt how Cochlear sees and conducts innovative research. Just a quick note before we start, to say that this episode was recorded before the last federal election, so any reference to the current government actually applies to the former government. Dig, thank you very much for your time today. Let's get started. Cochlear is a company that was built on biotechnology um, developed in academia by academic researchers. And today, my understanding is that research and science remain very important building blocks of the company. How do you maintain and do you maintain any research capabilities at Cochlear? How do you you maintain an innovative spirit research development? How do you stay in front of the pack? Yeah, Ram, good questions. And let's start with uh, an answer that gets to our culture. Um, is that we, um, as you said, were, Cochlear came from the development that Graham Clark did at the University of Melbourne, where he uh, and a multidisciplinary team developed the first multi-channel cochlear implant uh, in the world in 1978. Cochlear was formed to commercialise that development in uh, 1981. And so our birth was from innovation mm. and, and we are very clearly in a technology business where ongoing innovation is essential. And so we put 12% of our revenue each year into research and development. Uh, And that covers the whole spectrum of working on traditional product development to develop the next iteration of our product portfolio to developing new products or or, new products to um, improve therapy. Uh, and we did, we launched one of those quite recently. And we also do some of our own research, but we have a very broad range of research collaborations around the world. We have at any one time, we have about 100 research projects running, uh, usually in collaboration with universities around the world. They obviously range from, from very small to, to larger. And at Macquarie University, we have a very close relationship, sponsor a chair at Macquarie University where we 
well engaged with the hearing hub and with researchers in the hearing hub. So it is part of the culture of the business. It's part of the makeup of our business and essential to us retaining our uh, market leading position. How do you select the projects that you collaborate on you know, with, with researchers? Are they challenges and problems you face or are they you know, more traditional academic issues? I'd say they normally areas that challenges or opportunities from proven in the delivery of the therapy. So, so it might be that something we face specifically, you know, maybe around the use of a material or something like that, but typically they're more about the clinical care and clinical results, clinical outcomes from using our products or from how the therapy is currently delivered, which is our products plus the professional care that goes with it. And researching for ways to improve is ways of improving hearing outcomes, ways to improve the the convenience of care and therefore lower the cost of care. So it'll typically be things where it makes sense for us to have an external partner because it's about the delivery of the, the therapy. Whereas for product, our core product development, we will typically do that exclusively ourselves. Right. Uh, and there's, there's intellectual property reasons for doing that. There's reasons around our, our building and maintaining our expertise that we do consciously choose what is it we will do ourselves, what is it that we would like to partner, and what is it that we'll just monitor too, that we won't be involved in the research, but we're very interested in the outcomes of research. Do you have a clear set of criteria, you know, to choose whether you're doing research yourself or whether you're partnering with an external organisation to do this, this project? I think it is quite clear, but it's implicit in how we work rather than here's the document that says leads you through the decision process. Right, right, right. Talking about the product product and product development, um, you know, un, un, unlike um, Samsung or Apple, for example, where, uh, which can produce a new product every year, um, Cochlear ha- is unique because the, the products that it implants or that are implanted into in, the patients need to be there for the next 80, 90, 100 years. How do you balance this with innovation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and 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 that's certainly true. And our and our the implant system is made up of a number of components. So there is the the implant, and yes, we would like our design goal is that the implant has a very low failure rate over a lifetime, and we track the reliability of implants very closely. We publish uh, report the history of all of our implants and the reliability. Of them, and then there's the external parts of the system, which are the batteries and sound processor and coils that have a shorter life. They also, as technology improves, we can improve and upgrade the external components, which gives people a better hearing outcome. Mm-hmm. So we make our externals backwards compatible with our implants, so that people who got their implants 35 or 40 years ago get the benefit of the latest technology in terms of streaming and connectivity. So and that then plays into, so therefore we have different product life cycles for and different life spans for each of our products. And that does play into how we think about the risk in those products. And therefore the development of an implant, which that we want to have a very, very long life, has a huge risk management component, very, very extensive uh, testing, verification, validation element to those projects and a very expensive part of those projects and therefore those projects can take it can take 10 years to mm. develop a new implant and to take it through all of the, the level of testing that we want to do whereas the external products we do 
release every few years. We, we release a new external product, and that's where we have the, the much lower risk products. Um, they still have to work, be very reliable and work very well, so we still have quite rigorous verification and validation processes. But it is about tailoring that innovation work and the product development work to the risks associated with the product and, then, and also obviously the benefit and thinking about what the time horizon. So you spoke about you know the culture being uh, one that's very close to academia, and you've probably you've probably have quite a few academic researchers or scientists within Cochlear as well. Yes, um, and so people often oppose the two: public research, academia, and industry businesses. People sometimes speak, speak about you know the two sectors even speaking different languages or, or having different incentives. What's your view and um, how do you collaborate with you know, so-called academic public research? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I, th- I think you've, you've raised a few things there. There's, there's communication, there is incentives and, and incentives come from what are the objectives and there are differences and I think it's uh, important to understand those differences but also then be able to communicate in a way to bridge them. So, because I think in the end, a lot of us have the same goals. I mean, a, a brilliant piece of research is typically only of value once it's commercialised. Now, that's not that's not strictly true of all research, for sure. But for a, a cochlear implant, if a cochlear implant hadn't been commercialised, it would have been a wonderful invention, but delivered very little value to humanity. You know, it's the, the commercialisation that enables that value to be delivered, certainly for product. You know, there are types of research where the research in itself might be more easily to taken straight to societal value. So I think from that perspective, people who are doing the research into something that forms a product, whether it's a cochlear implant or something else, I'm sure are doing it because, at least in part, they'd like to see some change in society or mm. some, change, some good delivered to humanity. And and companies are very, very typically the vehicle of doing that. Uh, and if you look at what Cochlear does now, we've got our recipients in over 180 countries around the world. We continue to invest in R&D. We support those um, recipients through the 180 countries. Very hard to see an institution other than a company mm. that could actually deliver those sorts of outcomes on a global scale. Um, that said, we came from university research. So university research is critically important too. So I think it's understanding that there are different stages in the development of a, a technology, they are equally important, and they are all necessary to really deliver a, a benefit to humanity or to, to society. And I think if we can then communicate across the different stages, there is certainly more chance of um, enabling success. And and you've mentioned incentives because I think incentives do get misaligned. Um, you know, it's something that that's been looked at a, a bit, certainly uh, around the world, but also in Australia. If, in research, there is understandably incentives to publish. Mm. Um, now, publication is important, but it doesn't necessarily lead to commercialisation. Mm. So how to, I think, and there's the, you know, most our current government has had a look at how to try to bridge that step from publishing to commercialisation, and that was the, the University Research Commercialisation Task Force that the government formed came up with a number of recommendations to, to help that. I was part of that. Uh, that work. But it is important to understand incentives because they do drive behaviour and, and any incentive system is a trade-off. There is no perfect incentive system. So it's understanding where gaps in incentives are and then thinking how do we overcome those gaps to get the sort of end outcome. 
But I, th I think we've got to do a better job at also saying that industry is not the dark side and commercialization is not a dirty word. In changing these incentives, you're not selling your soul to the devil. <laughs> no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, Coupler is a very profitable company and we're very proud of that. And the reason that that is so important is that we now have 650,000 people around the world who have one of our implants, or actually more than that now. They depend on that implant for their life for hearing. Now, we can only provide that support if we succeed as a company. And we continue, just continue to exist as a company. Now, the only companies that continue to exist over that time frame are profitable companies. So it's a, you know, it's a essential part of... Um, how societies work, how, and how economies are delivered, how economies work. And there is no, no we have not invented a other form of delivering such long-term solutions to, to customers, in our case it's healthcare, other than a company. I mean, yeah. governments don't, yeah, governments have, have tried and failed in many times to, uh, to do that and there's no other system that uh, has succeeded. So yeah, I think I think companies shouldn't be seen as evil. I think there is understandably and rightly onus on companies to be very clear on their purpose and to hold to that purpose and and to strive to be profitable in meeting that purpose. So how do you explain that Cochlear is such a you know success story? But that in, in general, I think the view in general in Australia that the research pipeline is is excellent that Australia's you know patching about above its weight in terms of research producing excellent research reputation is 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 excellent but the transition from fundamental or basic research into and and, and de delivering these discoveries to people who need them and and it, it it includes commercialization but it it's not necessarily restricted to commercialization how do you explain that you know there is often a gap and i think we we're not good enough in delivering the discoveries to the people mm. who need them. Yeah, no, there, there, there is a gap, I agree. If you look at Australia's global rankings for research, they are significantly higher than Australia's global ranking for commercialisation. Certainly, that that's I think that is clear. And there's been a number of attempts over years to solve that problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and Cochlear was was part of solutions developed back in the late 80s that uh, the Fraser government at the time said the same thing. We're doing good research in Australia. We're not commercialising it. We will grant some money to good research uh, opportunities to see if they can be commercialised. And Cochlear was one of those companies. One of sorry, one of those ideas was the company at that point. I understand that there were 10 research developments funded by the government, and Cochlear was the only only one that succeeded. So, in Cochlear's early days, the federal government made about four million dollars worth of grants at the time, which, if you scale for inflation, is probably nearer twenty million dollars. Uh, today and they were stage gated so it wasn't all at once it was here's some money and if you deliver and if the project looks successful we'll put some more in and, and so I think yeah governments have a really important role to play in helping commercialization because there is a high risk there are stages which are very high risk that private investors sometimes take on but don't always take on and there's a role for government to reduce that risk by providing some money and got clear came from that. As a result, Cochlear paid a royalty to the government for many years, uh, appropriately 
say, and now pays far more in tax than the government invested back then, and again, appropriately so. So I think that there are many opportunities for what you might call market failure in Mm. taking a research idea through to commercialisation. Part of solving that is to have appropriate public policy settings that in part involves grants, that in part involves things like the the research and development uh, tax incentive scheme, But it's also about government procurement. It's about regulation, making it easy for companies to form and and having early customers that can often be government. I think think part of that should be looking at what is the incentive and and, um, for researchers to be part of commercialisation. Uh, and for university power commercialisation. And certainly there have been some recent proposals and changes put forward by government to try to increase the incentive there. What's the reward mm. from, a, from a university? And it doesn't, it can be financial is important, but it can be other ways as well. So I think it is, it's, uh, sorry, that's a really long answer, but it's a, it is a complicated problem that does need research universities and government and companies working together, and it does need a range of policy settings and money to help get through the high-risk area. And and knowing that, like there were nine out of ten failures when Cochrane was formed, there'll be plenty of money spent on things that don't succeed. That's the nature of early-stage research and commercialisation. And would that be in all sectors? Do you think we should, should we specialise and become, you know, known for medtech or biotech or, or space or quantum, you know? I, I, I think Australia has to specialise. I, I think we are too small to believe that we can do research and commercialise in any field. And again, there's been some, I think, in my view, some good moves over that in recent times that, that again that been a, there are six focus areas in government for commercialization so for manufacturing and the commercialization work is is following those six now that doesn't exclude funding for other areas mm. but it does say there are areas where Australia has some strengths so medical technology is clearly one of them agriculture and food, Uh, is another. And saying actually because of natural endowment or because of history, we do have uh, strengths. Prioritising investment to those, I think, does make sense of a country of our size. And we're seeing that in other countries around the world too. Of our size, I think I think you can look at the US and say, well, they do it differently, but that's a totally different scale. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think you've got to look at countries of our size and say, what are they doing? And they are more and more specialising because then you can actually put the weight of money. You can deliver more money to specific areas, which increases the, the chance of success than a, a very thin layer spread across many things has a very low probability of delivering any. Dick, I'm aware we only have two minutes left, but I've got... Oh, I'll, sorry. If, I, if, I, if I can ask you one last question. If you had a magic wand to improve or facilitate research commercialization, uh, you know, again, getting discoveries out to the people who need them, what would you do? You have no limits. Okay, okay, I do a, a couple of things. First of all, um, I would publicise the successes. Part of publicising successes is about attracting the very best people to want to do research and to want to commercialise, want to make a difference to society. Uh, and I think the quality of people is the, the mm-hmm. fundamentally most important thing. You get good people by showing people what, what can be achieved and making it, making it interesting. And it is interesting. When people get into it, they, they do find it. So first thing, publicise. Second thing is make sure that there is appropriately money targeted at these 
the, the gaps uh, at, at the points of failure, which you know, can be, be between, re the, between research and commercialisation. And then making sure that there's appropriate review. It's not just a free handout, but there is actually good scrutiny on and objective criteria on what does success look like and what point do we fund. Um, so there too, I could go on, but <laughs> I think it's getting good people, having targeted uh, money available and that money used to incentivize, to line incentive, incentives across the, the journey. Great. That's fantastic. Thank you so much again. I think, yeah, we're running out of time. and I know you're busy, but I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so no much. Thanks, Rob. Have a good day. Bye. Pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What?